Welcome to the Mercy Commons podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We trust that the Word of God encourages you and that the Holy Spirit empowers you. Gosh, man, it's good. Uh, it's good to be here in person. It's good to, to get to uh, to open the Word and preach um, preach in person. I haven't done this in in a while. Um, it uh, feels feels different. <laughs> Uh, but it's really, it's really good to, it's really good to be here. Um, I am, uh, I'm grateful to at least get to see half of your faces, so that's good. I can see, and uh, and for those of you who are uh, joining online, uh, we miss you, and you are part of this family too. So thanks for, uh, thanks for 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 joining with us online this evening. It is, uh, by the way, my name's Sean. Sorry, I'm, uh, I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, it's my privilege to uh, to get to continue. Uh, in our series in uh, in Colossians, and um, gosh, as one um, as one commentator put it, Colossians gives us kind of the highest doctrine concerning Jesus Christ in the New Testament. It's it's uh, you know in a time of like just a lot of upheaval and confusion and anger and um, just all sorts of things, sins being exposed, both personal and and systemic. Um, you know, it's just really good for us to come together as the people of God, to sit under his word, and to take a nice, long look at Jesus. It's like a glass of cold water on a, on a hot day. Um, and uh, so that's what we're going to do before we jump in. Um, we're going we're gonna to look at a passage again that, that, we, that we've already, already taught from, just to read it, just to reorient our minds, because... Paul is putting Jesus front and center and lifted up. And that's the, entire, the entirety of this book is, is so much about that. So on the, on the screen is going to be uh, Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Would you, uh, would you read it with me? He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation. For in him all things in heaven and earth were created. Things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. He himself is above all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have preeminence over everything. For in him all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell and through him, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace through the blood of his cross. Jesus, high and lifted up, the one that holds all things together, the preeminent one. Last week, up, up, Nick was talking to us about how Paul is in agony with concern about how false narratives and empty philosophies, how they can delude and possibly result in, in believers kind of being, being snatched away, taken captive by elemental and even demonic powers. Today we continue in that same line of thinking, that same agonizing concern that Paul has for the church uh, to get us into that line of thinking. I'm going to pick up in verse 8 from last week, and we're going to move through verse 17 this morning uh, from, from the book of Colossians. It should be on the screen. I'm reading from the NRSV. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the universe and not according to Christ. For in him all, the, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily 
and you have come to fullness in him, who is the head of every ruler and authority. In him, you, in him also you were circumcised with the spiritual circumcision by putting off the body of the flesh in the circumcision of Christ. When you were buried with him in baptism and you were, and you were also raised with him through faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with him. And he forgave us all our trespasses, erasing the record that stood against us with its legal demands. He set this aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers, the authorities, and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in it. Therefore, do not let anyone condemn you in matters of food and drink or of observing festivals, new moons, or Sabbaths. These are only a shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. This is the word of the Lord. If you're looking for a sermon title person, uh, you're looking for a sermon uh, this evening, the sermon is from narrative to substance. From narrative to substance. Narratives have a lot of power, right? Uh, stories are core to human nature. We, uh, you know, once upon a time, right? Once upon a time or uh, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, uh, you know, or a personal favorite of mine, there, <laughs> there was a man with two sons, uh, right? There's uh, this, this idea that we are, the way that we're designed, we are creatures of story. Anthropologists will tell you that in every nation, tribe, and tongue, story is used, leveraged, and enjoyed. Uh, it's a universal truth, and it's baked into us. This is not a surprise to us, by the way. We are the, we're the, the people of God that our scriptures tell us that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. A word is expressive. It's not stagnant. And this word came and lived among us, and in his living, he told a story. He happened to tell a lot of stories while he was here too, but his entire life was a story. We are made in the image of this God, in the image of the word made flesh. The word, we, we, we're also told, by the way, in the book of Revelations, that we overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. The word of our testimony is not just what happens to me. It's the, it's the story of Jesus Christ. It's the story of what he has accomplished for us and, 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 and through his power. It is a story of absolute substance. The challenge is, in the same way that stories are core to our nature, uh, distorting stories is core to the nature of our enemy. <laughs> uh, Jesus tells us very flatly and straight up that Satan is the father of lies. As Nick put it last week, he's in the misinformation business. He tells counter stories, loves to twist things, distort things. Uh, he's constantly publishing fake news. Uh, what Paul calls here in our passage, empty deceit. It's, it's vaporware. It's, it, there's nothing to it. This is why Paul is so concerned and with this story is pushing the story of substance back front and center for us. He does not put forward an argument. He puts forward a person. He puts forward a person. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition and not according to Christ. He puts forward a person. The final two verses in our text today 
tell us that Paul, Paul says this, therefore do not let anyone condemn you in matters of food and drink, of observing festivals, new moons, or Sabbaths. These are only a shadow of what's to come. The substance belongs to Christ. It's clear from this that Paul's highlighting that the church is actually facing kind of this religiously cultural pressure based in human tradition, human traditions. Nick talked a little bit about that last week. I'm going to talk a little bit about, a little bit more about that. The issue at the crux of this thing is at the very heart of the gospel itself. It's at the actual very heart of the gospel itself. It's who is righteous? That, that's, a fundamental, that's a fundamental question. Who is righteous and how does one become righteous? We all want to be right, right? Like we don't, no one likes to be wrong. But even beyond that, how do we become people of righteousness? It, it's about cultural pressure in this, in this text. He's concerned about cultural pressure to conform to those things, those laws. He critiques the cultural pressure and reminds us, religiously cultural pressure, and reminds us how to deal with it. So let's take a look first at the, the, the kind of the cultural pressure that the Colossian church was, uh, was, was under, the religiously cultural pressure. How to be culturally right just in Colossae. While it's true that, the, that, that in Colossae there was a, a large mix of different religions and an influence of the Gnostic thought, um, theologian N.T. Wright argues pretty, per, pretty uh, persuasively that one of, the, one of the big things that Paul is concerned about through his word choice and examples, his really specific examples, is a concern that this young church might be pulled back into the Jewish law to, to, to some degree. And it's usually, it's amalgamation of Jewish and Gnostic thought, but there's a, a real strong backbone of Jewish, Jewish law. And, and this is, by the way, something that Paul attacks pretty vehemently in other places, especially Galatians, one of my favorite books. I don't know why. He sounds so angry. <laughs> and it, it's just, I love it. <laughs> uh, Judaism had, had been in Colossae for a long time. Okay, this is something that's important. It actually had been there for, for, for quite a while. So it was well established. It, I mean, it was going to be a, a regular part of the, of the tradition of the culture in the background. Whether you were Jew or not, it was present. It was, it, was, it was fairly known. Now, the particularly difficult thing about this for the early church was that Judaism was the ethnic container out of which Christianity sprung. It was the monotheistic faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the law of Moses. And, and it was this law of Moses, this law of Moses that had prominent place in the minds and, and in the community about righteousness, about how one is made right before God and then is identified as God's own special and righteous people. It was all about the law, the observance of the law, the signaling in a sense of, 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 of being one of God's people through the observance of things like uh, male circumcision, food laws, participation in festivals, and observance of the Sabbath. All of these were these outward signs of righteousness, declaring their particular position as God's peculiar people. Speaking of the law, it was given by God. <laughs> uh, sometimes I think we kind of drift into what Paul like almost automatically understood that people were going to think he thought, which is that the law in itself is bad. And, and, and to, just so that he was clear, and just so that I'm clear, Paul in Romans 7, even after talking about how, what the law was good for, and how Christ has superseded the law, and fulfilled the law, he, he, he makes sure that we understand in Romans 7 that the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and it's just, and it's good. 
There's, there's nothing wrong with the law, except it had no power to help change us, had no power to rescue us, to save us. He also tells Timothy in 1 Timothy, he says, we know that the law is good if one uses it legitimately for what it's, what it's good for. So don't get me wrong, these things that they're feeling this pressure about were actually really good religious things. They were given and grounded in the law, given by, by God. So here you are, if you're in, you're in Colossae, you have this holy, just, and good law from God, and you have Jewish cultural religious pressure telling you that you have to conform to this particular thing. You have to observe these practices and these rituals if you are to be a part of the righteous in crowd. If you want to be right and to show everyone that you're right, this is how it's done. This is part of the cultural pressure that's bathed and baked into a legal, religious legalism. It's tricky. That's a tricky thing to parse out and to figure, and to figure that out. But Paul is really adamant. Don't give in to this religious pressure. These things are a shadow. The substance is Christ. Don't let go of Christ. Interestingly, we have some similarities uh, in modern-day America and, and Colossae. As I was studying this, it kind of was like, oh, man, wow. I, understanding kind of some of the cultural religious pressure, uh, boy, we, we have plenty of it on all sorts of different sides, by the way. So we're going to focus in on two. The first one I'm going to call kind of the moral majority identity. Just like Judaism and Colossae, Christianity has to varying degrees blended with cultural and moral identity here in the United States for a really long time. It's been a part of the background of the fabric of the culture, right? How many of you guys have heard this phrase, God helps those who help themselves? Show, show of hands. God helps those who help themselves. Okay. I cannot think of a more Americana <laughs> phrase to capture how the idea of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness has mashed up with a generalized view of faith in God. The reality is Paul tells us the exact opposite of that phrase. In Romans 5.8, while we were still sinners and unable to help ourselves, Christ died for us. Are you, you hear me? Paul, here's another one. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Figure it out. If you're down and out, it must be your fault. That might not be a phrase, but that's what a lot of people think. And that phrase is, 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 not, a, is, not, a, is not rooted in Christ. It's rooted in culture. It's rooted in a, in a, in a distortion of, of faith that has blended with, with our culture. You can see how a simple phrase like that, when it's turned into a culturally religious idea or law, it can harm the poor. It ignores injustice. And it can create a callous heart toward those who are different or struggling. It's not my problem. No one helped me. Why do we have to help those people? Why should we go broke helping those people? It's not rooted in Christ. It's rooted in culture. God helps those who help themselves? I don't think so. Let me tell you another story. This one's about my mom. Um, 
so I was, you know, born in the late 70s. So the, fast forward into like mid, late 1980s. And uh, my, uh, my brothers and I, we had kind of reached teen, preteen years. I was one of three, three boys. And that year, you know, I, somewhere in there, a Christian bookstore opened up in our little small rural town in Ohio. And my mom, the, uh, the consummate shopper, that's what she, she would say, um, she decided she was going to go check it out. And uh, she did. And when she did, she discovered the new and the exciting world of Christian contemporary music. She, uh, she bought up every Amy Grant album she could possibly find. Um, and she also discovered Christian rock music. Petra was the first album that she bought. Uh, I've gone back and listened to it. But at the time, I loved it. My, me and my brothers, we absolutely loved it. We were, we were young and just kind of starting to come into like, at, a, at the church that we were at, they played like orchestra music. And there was another guy by the name of Steve Green, which was like, oh, the kids are real into that. You know, like it, it was, we were starting to kind of wake up to the idea of like, oh, rock music, that's amazing. Well, see, here's the thing. One of the ladies in the church uh, was really worried about my mom listening to this kind of music. So she went to the pastor of the church. She's like, we've got to rescue Debbie and the Stewarts from this devil music. I, I'm not even joking. <laughs> like, I'm not even joking. So a few weeks later, my mom and dad, they get a house visit from the pastor and two deacons in the church. Whoa. Coming to confront my mom out of concern for her being drawn away by this heathen music. They told her that she was in sin and that she needed to stop listening to that music and stop letting us listen to it. Yeah. My mom politely stood her ground with the support. My mom's pretty stubborn. <laughs> I love her. Um, she stood her ground and she told them, I have zero conviction from the Holy Spirit and I honestly see no biblical grounding for what you're talking about. Um, so she held her ground and... Uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, the, the, the reality is that they eventually kind of backed off. And, um, and we actually stayed at that church. And I ended up uh, graduating high school from that church. And the church kind of, not just because of that, but I was actually really proud of her. I was talking with her last night about it. And I'm just really proud of the fact that she stood her ground on the scripture and on the conviction of the spirit. Um, you see, the church had taken a non-biblical idea. It was totally pulled from somewhere in the culture. Like, you know, the, the, the 60s happened and rock music and drugs and all sorts of things. You can't listen to music with dr drums in it. It's the spirit of rebellion. It's cultural. It's absolutely cultural. And those things become barriers to Jesus. They had, a, they had erected a barrier to Jesus. And there were lots of barriers like that then. Um, you know, things like don't dance. You know, uh, women can't wear pants. <laughs> oh, that was one, for real. I, like, I was one. Um, and righteous people vote a particular way. That was another one. It's all cultural. It's, it's absolutely cultural. And they can become barriers to Christ. The substance is Christ. The second way that we resemble Colossae is something that I'm going to call um, and by the way, don't hear what I'm not saying. What I'm not saying there is that like, morality is important. Different things like that are important, right? You, you, get, what I'm, you get what I'm saying, right? Okay, good. Um, the second thing that I'm going I'm, I'm to call is this idea of the um, ideological religious laws. So in a sense, this is, uh, 
this is kind of like wanting Christ's ethic without Christ. So uh, there's a book out uh, in 2019 called Dominion. Um, and, uh, and in it, award-winning historian Tom Holland, who, by the way, is not a Christian, probably wouldn't be considered himself a fan of the church. But this book is a phenomenal book. Uh, it's incredibly important. He, he makes an extremely well-documented historical case that the central values and the priorities of Western secular culture, not religious culture, Western secular culture have actually come from Christianity. They don't come from secular humanism nor Darwinian thought. They come from Christian ideals. They don't come from other religions. They come from Christian ideals. Things like human rights comes from a Christian ideal. The value of the poor and the weak. In the ancient world, that was foolish and crazy. The necessity of caring and advocating for all, a belief in moral absolutes, especially that oppression of the powerless is wrong. Christian idea taken from a Christian ethic. However, part of what Holland puts forward is that the world through the Enlightenment has increasingly sought to move away from the dominance of the church and to cast off superstition and bigotry. They want Christ ethic without Christ. Now, don't get me wrong. The church has done plenty of bad things, right? And that book actually puts all of it on the table. But the reality is a lot of the, a lot of the, 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 the things that we see today advocated, they, they are rooted, they're rooted in our world. Not, not in the world, not in the world of the world. Not in the world of the world. There you go. Our Western world has done what Paul said the ancient world did in Romans 10.3, since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Without Jesus, who is the substance, and as he also says in Romans, the culmination of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes, the shadow of these ethics are turning into laws in the hands of people who do not embody the ultimate law, the law of love. Love for neighbor and more importantly, love for enemy. We're living in a time when this trend has combined with the explosive power of the internet and it is resulting in the rise of justified bullying, community shaming, and righteous canceling of those who violate the new unchristian standards. Twitter captures the written code and debts of sinners who cross these cultural lines. Again, don't hear what I'm not saying. What I'm not saying, the ideas of, the, the, the ideas of uh, um, racial injustice, um, the, the, the uh, profound difficulty and uh, horrible things related to the treatment of women, like all that's bad. I'm talking, about, I'm talking about a very specific thing that is a bullying kind of legal spirit that sits on top of some of that in the same way that was happening in Colossae with the law. The substance is Christ for us. The substance is Christ. This goes beyond virtue signaling. You know, I mean, we've probably all heard that phrase. I really think today it's, it's moving to the idea of, of righteousness. It goes to the heart of how people see themselves as right and righteous. If you show that you believe the right things and you don't run afoul, you're in. If not, you will meet the fury of the new ideological religious police. You too can be canceled. 
This is precisely what Paul is dealing with here when he says, quote, do not let anyone condemn you in matters of food and drink or observing festivals, new moons, or Sabbaths. He is not saying don't allow anyone to pass criticism on you. In the Greek, the idea of what, what Paul is talking about, as N.T. Wright puts it, it is a matter of excluding them or not informing them that they are excluded from the people of God. So it's the idea, the idea of condemnation is not just a criticism, it's you're out. You don't fit. You're not in. You have been canceled. That's literally what Paul is actually saying there in regard to these religious, holding on to these religious ideologies. Anglican Bishop Todd Hunter had this to say about, about this idea. Today's ideological religions will cause you to observe and judge your friends your networks, your neighbors and family, and even yourself through the ideological lens of righteousness. Church, we're not called to this kind of judgment. That's, that's, not, that's not our place. 1 Corinthians 4, 3 through 5, Paul says this, but with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted, I'm not innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Nor are, by the way, nor are we to receive and accept judgment of others based on the observance of those laws and the observance of what is right in their eyes. The, the scripture tells us, if anyone is in Christ, behold a new creation. The substance is Christ. He is our Lord. He will challenge us. He will lead us. He will instruct us. He will correct us. And he will help us to love one another. And if we'll let him, he'll teach us to love our enemies. How does Paul suggest we hold up to this pressure then, right? There's this kind of there's this kind of cultural religious pressure. How do we hold up to it? How, how do we do a good job of doing that? Well, he reminds us that we belong to a new age and a new king. As I said before, he doesn't put forward an argument. He puts forward a person. Reminder, a reminder of what this person has done for us, what Jesus has done for us, the narrative of substance. First thing, you have a new heart from, from this passage. And you have come to fullness in him who is the head of every ruler and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a spiritual circumcision by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ when you were buried with him in baptism. Paul wants us to see that we have entered into a new reality. You are in Christ, you are in a new reality. Circumcision, by the way, was the point of entry into the Jewish faith. All male children were circumcised on the eighth day. They received their Jewish name and they were ceremonially welcomed into the family on that, on that day. The other thing about circumcision is that it was never just meant to stop at an outward sign. Even in the Old Testament, it was talked about as an internal heart change. The, the reality of the connection from outward to internal but the law couldn't perform the surgery. 
It was powerless to change us. So Christ has performed the surgery for all who have believed and welcomed us into the family of his father. Ezekiel 36, 26 says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take your heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Galatians 4, 6 says, because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. We have been welcomed into a new family and a new reality, a new age and a new king. And it was a sheer gift, a total gift. You, you were also raised with him through faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead is what Paul tells us in this passage. This new status, this new heart, this new standing, it's a sheer gift. It's a sheer gift. You did nothing to earn it. You just received it. Good news, you can't screw it up. <laughs> it, he, he gave it to you. It's, it, is a, it is a gift. And on top of that, if that wasn't good enough, if that wasn't good enough, the, the fact that he's given us a new heart, that it was of a sheer gift, all unrightness, unrighteousness has been erased. He forgave us all our trespasses. By the way, trespasses, there's different words for sin in, in the New Testament. Trespass has to do with like the aggressive, I know what I'm doing kind, kind of sin. There's like sin that I just, you know, I fall short. I'm, you know, th this one's like the most aggressive one, like trespass. He's forgiven us all our trespasses, erasing the record that stood against us with its legal demands. He set this aside, nailing it to the cross. Paul here is talking about a list of charges, a sense of debt, a handwritten note of the debts that you owe and that you're going to agree to that you owe. This picture is beautiful, actually, when we understand this idea of writing on paper. In the ancient world, the paper that was used uh, was either a parchment or a vellum, and the ink that they had didn't have acid in it, so when you wrote, it didn't actually penetrate the, the fabric of the paper. It didn't, like, go into the paper. So you could very easily wipe it off. You just wipe it off, and it's gone, brand new. Paul says here, your sins, these trespasses were blotted out. Gone. New paper. New paper. And he doesn't stop there. What happens to the paper? It is nailed to the cross. The very thing, not even just the sins, but the thing that we tally sins on, crucified to the cross in Christ. There is now, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He forgave us all our trespasses. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting. Someone needs to hear that. God is not counting your sins. He does not have a bucket where he's dropping a quarter in every time you sin to, to mete out punishment. If that's the God you think we serve, I have good news for you. That is not the father of Jesus. He has entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. Band, you guys can uh, join me back up here. Are we doing that like that? Okay. I don't know. We haven't done this in a while. There is, if all of that wasn't good enough, guys, it gets better in this passage. There is now no power able to condemn you. 
He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and made a public example of them triumphing over them in it on the cross. The word disarm is a stripping of the enemy's weapons and defenses. Jesus, before he ascended back to the Father, said this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go. What he says goes. The accuser of the, of the brethren has been stripped of his teeth. Every antagonistic voice, may it be shut and silenced in Jesus' name. Just like Jesus said to the woman caught in the act of adultery, when her accusers had dropped their stones and left in John 8, woman, where are they? <laughs> Is there no one to condemn you? She said, no, sir, there's no one. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Do not submit yourself to dead principles and bullies. Listen, church, however you feel, whatever ways you feel like you're not good enough or you've fallen short or fill in the blank, whatever it is, you don't live up to whatever, I have a word for you. Paul has a word for you. This is from Galatians 2, verses 17 through 21, and I'm going to read it from the message. Have some of you noticed that we are not yet perfect? No great surprise, right? And are you ready to make the accusation that since people like me, who go through Christ in order to get things right with God, aren't perfectly virtuous, Christ must therefore be an accessory to sin? The accusation, that's frivolous. If I was trying to be good, I would be rebuilding the same old barn that I tore down. I would be acting as a charlatan. What actually took place is this. I tried keeping rules and working my head off to please God, and it didn't work. So I quit being a lawman so that I could be God's man. Christ's life showed me how and enabled me to do it. I identified myself completely with him. Indeed, I have been crucified with Christ. My ego is no longer central. It is no longer important that I appear righteous before you or have your good opinion. And I am no longer driven to impress God. Christ lives in me. The life you see me living is not mine, but it is lived by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I am not going back on that. I am not going back on that. Is it not clear to you that to go back to that old rule-keeping, peer-pleasing religion would be an abandonment of everything personal and free in my relationship with God? I refuse to do that, to repudiate God's grace. If a living relationship with God could come by rule-keeping, then Christ died unnecessarily. The substance belongs to Christ. Father, I want to say thank you. I want to say thank you for rooting and establishing us in your love. Thank you for rescuing us 
Thank you for choosing us, selecting us. We didn't choose you, you chose us. Thank you that your love is not just for us, it's for the whole world. You desire the world to know of this great love that you were in, Father, you were in Christ reconciling the world to yourself and that you're no longer counting men's sins against them. But it requires them to turn and to receive that good news. Lord, would you help us to be the kind of people that receive this good news fresh today? Wake up tomorrow confident and secure in this good news? Would you help us to be the kind of people Would you help us capture our affections that we would be the kind of people that can't help but tell others what good news this is, that there's freedom in Christ. There's freedom in Christ. We love you. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Commons podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, please rate us and hit subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at mercycommons.church.